Well, I agree with Joe. Yeah, that's, a la- that's laughable. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, we, we're going to go ahead and continue our series. And as you see from the board there, <clears throat> this is a baptism. We're in a series on baptism, a Baptist view. And I, maybe I should uh, make a little bit of a qualification um, here. This is the Baptist view from my perspective. Uh, not every Baptist will probably agree with every single thing that I say. But I think overall, uh, we as Baptists will agree that um, that it is believers who are to be baptized, professing believers. So, um, but uh, that's just a little bit of a, of a disclaimer. We're going to continue with part two on the foundations of infant baptism. And um, uh, just to be candid with you, I don't know that I feel like my material today is organized as well as I would like it to have been, but it is what it is, so let's pray and ask the Lord to help us as we look into uh, the scriptures today. Father in heaven, we are grateful that you have given us your word. We're thankful that it is not the word of man, but is the word of God. And Lord, we are thankful for how you have in times past revealed yourself to your people, that you have given us much uh, information about you, your plan of salvation. And, um, and so, Lord, we want to be encouraged with that again this morning. We want to recognize how good you have been in showing yourself to us. And we pray that you would help us as we look into your word. We may understand it rightly. We pray that you be with both speaker and hearer, that um, you would be glorified in anything that I would say that is not uh, good or accurate, that it would fall to the ground, and that those things that are true according to your word would take root in our hearts. So, Lord, we pray for your blessing this day in Jesus' name. Amen. As I indicated, we are continuing with the series on foundations of infant baptism. We're examining them. And uh, the general title here is Understanding Covenants. And as I said before, it might seem like it's something of a diversion or uh, kind of we're off on a rabbit trail here or something, but I really do believe that for us to understand the, um, the justification for infant baptism, we're going to have to understand the covenants because that's where it comes from. So this, I believe, will be profitable, not just, however, uh, John, good to see you. How was your trip? Good. <laughs> uh, th- this should be profitable, not just for um, understanding infant baptism, but I think even more so for just our understanding of the scriptures and our understanding of how God has worked in redemptive history. And so my, my goal this morning here is, uh, is kind of twofold, and that is to help us to have a background so that we can do some evaluation of the, doc- the doctrine of infant baptism, but also so that we can just have a background that helps us to understand the Bible in general. So, now, a little bit of review. Remember last week <clears throat> we said that with regard to uh, the evidence for infant baptism, According to John Murray, I quoted him, 
It is only too apparent, and this is what he says, it is only too apparent that if we had an express command or even a proven case of infant baptism with apostolic sanction, then the controversy would have been would not have arisen. So Pedobaptists recognize, as we have said, that there's not really a single verse in the entire scriptures, let alone the New Testament, that deal with baptism, of, uh, the baptism of infants. And so the justification then, has, according to Murray, is the evidence for infant baptism falls into the category of good and necessary inference. And that good and necessary inference is based on an understanding of the covenants. By way of review also, we discussed what the features of a suzerainty covenant are. And I believe that all the covenants in the scripture where God is, is one of the parties of the covenants are suzerainty covenants, there are parity covenants. And we talked about the form, the general form of those covenants, as has been uh, revealed to us through a lot of the historical um, uh, discoveries. And uh, it also fits what the scriptures themselves say. And I don't believe that, the, that everything, all the covenants in the Bible, necessarily follow one for one exactly covenants as they were uh, uh, produced through, say, like the Hittite, Hittites, all the Hittite Treaty Covenants and, and other uh, nations, but they do borrow. It's kind of like uh, when we see Hebrew poetry or we see apocalyptic literature, those, those um, genres are outside of the scriptures. That we have Hebrew poetry, we've got apocalyptic literature, we've got letters like the Apostle Paul that were written during that time, and the, the Lord uses that kind of genre that existed in order to communicate his truth, and that is true with regard to the covenants. And so we said with regard to uh, the features of the suzerainty, suzerainty uh, treaty covenants, that there's a preamble which identifies the author, there's a historical prologue which describes the previous relationship between the two parties of the covenants, there are stipulations which tell the vassal king what he's supposed to do, and remember that typically a suzerainty covenant is between a, a great powerful king who is conquered or who rules over a vassal, a lesser king, and so he gives the lesser king, the vassal king, uh, the stipulations that he is requiring of that king. And then there are future provisions of the covenant text. There was a text that was produced. The, um, the, the document was to be kept in the king's, uh, in, in the nation's sanctuary, their holy place, usually a, a place of the gods, a temple of the gods, something like that. And then there was provision made for the public reading of that document to remind the vassal king of what his obligations are. Then there are sanctions, which is how the the um, suzerain enforces the rules, the stipulations of the of the covenant, and so there's blessing for faithfulness, there's cursing for unfaithfulness, and then there are witnesses, typically a list of the gods, and then after the covenant is created, there is a ceremony to ratify the covenant, and it typically has two parts to that. One is an oath of ratification. Someone swears an oath. And often, and typically, it's called a maledictory oath because uh, of the way that that is done. And we'll look at that more in um, the covenant of Abraham a little later today. And then there was a covenant meal to celebrate the, uh, the sealing of the covenant. And then there was a sign of the covenant. Um, by the way, let me ask you, there's different types of covenants. What type of covenant was the Mosaic covenant? 
Okay, it was unilateral. It was a suzerainty covenant, but there are two types. I mentioned them. I'll uh, mention them uh, on a previous time. There is, there is a, yeah, did you, what did you say? Well, covenant of grace, that is a covenant that we'll be dealing with later. Or, But there are two types of covenants, two types of suzerainty covenants. Mosaic covenant is one, the Abrahamic covenant is another. The, and it has to do with who swears the oath of ratification. If the people, the vassal king, swears the oath of ratification, it's a law covenant. If the suzerain himself, the powerful king, swears the oath of ratification, it's a promise covenant. And you can see those two types in Galatians 3. So, okay, just keep that in mind because that's important for identifying these covenants. So there's a ratifying oath, there's a covenant meal, and then there's a sign of the covenant. And what was the sign of the Mosaic covenant? It was the Sabbath. Okay, so... That by way of quick review. Now, um, what I'm going to do here, if I have this organized well, better than I thought I had, uh, we're going to look at the covenants as they are presented to us in Scripture. We're not going to look at them in detail, but just kind of give a, a broad overview. And if you'll take your handout, the one handout that has like two halves to it that looks kind of like this, we're going to be looking at the bottom half the bottom half of this handout. Okay, if you didn't get one, they're on the chairs in the back. So remember as you come in each day to take a look. Make sure that the one that you have is, is uh, the one that's back there is different than the one that you have that you don't. So feel free to get up and get it if you don't have a copy. So we're going to look at the bottom part of this, co- of this uh, diagram. And um, if you look to the bottom line on the diagram, you'll notice that it starts with the Adamic covenant, sometimes called the covenant of works. And then it moves through uh, chronologically. So let's take a look, a look for a moment at the Adamic covenant. <clears throat> Is there an Adamic covenant? Well, I think so. Uh, the biblical warrant for this is a little more sketchy than, say, some of the other covenants. However, I think there's enough for us to say that God entered into a covenant relationship with Adam. <clears throat> Hosea 6-7, I think, is an important text, at least it is for me, in understanding this, because in Hosea 6-7, we read this. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithful, faithlessly with me. Talking about the children of Israel. And so there's this comparison between the children of Israel and Adam. And the comparison is, like Adam transgressed his covenant, so they have transgressed um, and dealt faith, the covenant and dealt, faith, dealt faithlessly with me. I think that the covenant that he's talking about there, that the children of Israel have transgressed, is the Mosaic covenant. But there's a comparison here. And both of them, I believe, would be what we call a law covenant. <coughs> so, uh, I think that Hosea 6-7 points us in the direction of a covenant for Adam. But there are other things as well, like the parallel with Christ in, in Romans uh, chapter Five, we see the two headship concept presented <clears throat> where Adam is the type of him who is to come. We read verse 18, so then as through one transgression that is of Adam, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through the one act of righteousness that is Christ, 
there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners, even so through the even so the many will be made righteous through the obedience of the one that is Christ. And so we know that Christ was in a relationship, covenant relationship with, with God, and there's this parallel between the two. And so I think that there's warrant there, indications there of a covenant with Adam. But Genesis chapters 2 and 3 also <clears throat> give us, I think, further warrant for that. And we see that in the covenant elements that are presented in the book of Genesis. So, for example, <clears throat> you remember God uh, put Adam in a garden, and what did he tell him to do? First thing, before even Eve was created. Cultivate the garden, right? Cultivate the garden, then Eve was created. Later on, he comes on, he comes to Adam and says, I want you to multiply, build the earth, I want you to rule over all of creation. So there were certain stipulations that God had given to Adam in the garden, positive in this case. <coughs> but there was also a negative stipulation. We're all familiar with that, I think most of us in here. And that is, there was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil put in the garden, and God says, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so there was a stipulations that were required of Adam. And there were sanctions for obedience or disobedience. I believe there would have been blessing upon Adam and Eve, had they continued in righteousness, had they not disobeyed, <clears throat> I believe that they would have been confirmed ultimately in their righteousness and they would have been allowed to eat then of the tree of life. I think that's why it was there. However, they were never really allowed to eat of that because they transgressed the sanctions of the covenant and they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so then the cursing was came to Adam and Eve as a result, and that cursing was, in a word, death. In the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And that death is kind of a broad, sweeping term that I believe encompassed the other aspects of the curse that came upon Adam and Eve when God came to them and pronounced the curse upon them. So, for example, with regard to Eve, when he addressed Eve, he says that in pain you will go through childbirth. Then with, with regard to Adam, he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to curse the earth. It's going to bring forth thorns and thistles. And you're going to have to work and cultivate the ground by the sweat of your brow now. And so this curse came upon the earth and upon Adam and Eve because they broke the covenant. And then lastly, uh, I don't think that Satan was a party in the covenant, but I think that the covenant, because it brought death, extended even to Satan. And there's a curse upon the Satan, upon Satan in Genesis chapter three and verse 15. And there he was told that he was going to be crawling on his belly all of his life, licking up dust, that there would be enmity between him and that his head would be bruised. And we're going to look at that uh, verse in just a moment. Now, if you look at your outline here, <clears throat> this, this diagram, the bottom. So you see where the fall is? There's the fall. And uh, that was what occurred and what we're talking about here. Often the covenant of grace is, uh, is said to have been established right at this point, And they will point to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 as the grounds for or the establishment of the covenant of grace. And we're going to examine that in future days. But for right now, what I want you to do is just look at the wording of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. 
And here we see something that I think is really important for our understanding of the entirety of the, the redemptive history from this point on. The, the word that came to the serpent was this. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring, the woman in this case, uh, no doubt referring to Eve uh, as a type, but the woman who was the one who took the fruit and gave it to Adam. I will put in between you and the woman, as a further reference than that, of course, and between your offspring, and the word there is seed or uh, the Septuagint, sperma, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, when we see this overarching statement that the Lord makes, we see that there are two seeds. God is establishing that there are two seeds, not three seeds, not two and a half, two seeds. Secondly, this is a comprehensive statement regarding all of human history. This is going to be characteristic. What he's describing here is characteristic of all of human history from the time of the fall all the way until Jesus comes back. <clears throat> Thirdly, the central focus is on Christ, who is the central figure in all of human history. We know um, from further revelation that ultimately this enmity between the, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman finds its, uh, its apex, its zenith, in the enmity of the serpent against Christ. And so what's going to happen is he will eventually crucify Christ. Satan will see to it that he is crucified. And um, at that same time, Christ, by God's divine plan, will be defeating Satan. And so the seed of the woman, that is Christ, is going to bruise the head of the serpent, going to crush his head, as Paul puts it in Romans 16. And um, at, at that time, his seed, the seed of the woman, Christ, he will have his heel bruised. And I do think that that is a reference to the crucifixion. But this, this conflict between the two seeds is determinative of all of human history, and Christ is the focus. He is the one who's going to come and destroy the serpent. And so, uh, the succeeding covenants then all tie in with this declaration and this overall perspective on the uh, what is happening throughout human history. And we're going to look at that in more detail now. So that's the Adamic covenant. The fall occurs. <clears throat> God could completely destroy all of mankind, but he doesn't. And uh, human history goes on for a little bit. We see then in uh, Genesis chapter 6 through 9 that what happens? There's the the flood. Okay. And what happens to all of mankind then? Except for eight people, all of mankind is destroyed. There are eight people. Well, what about this? What about this um, plan that God has? What about this prophecy, as it were, even as he pronounced the curse upon the serpent, that there's going to be enmity between uh, the two seeds and that eventually the uh, the seed of the 
serpent is going to have his head crushed and the seed of the woman is going to have his, his heel bruised. What, what about that? Is there redemption going on here? Yeah, we do know that there's redemption that's, that's, that's happening. Or what about that plan of redemption? What's going to happen to it? Well, that's what the Noahic covenant is about. <clears throat> it's a covenant, I believe, of preservation. I think Tim has taught on this before. I don't even know if you might have even used that word preservation. I'm not sure, Tim. But um, um, Genesis chapter 9, God enters into a covenant with Noah, and it's God, Noah, his descendants, all of all of the creatures, actually, in Genesis 9, 8 through 10. And it's a covenant, and the covenant type here is a promise type. There's nothing required of Noah. There's nothing required of his descendants. It is God simply making a promise to Noah that I am not going to destroy the earth again by means of a flood. And so the blessing is that he will never again send a flood and there is no cursing involved in the Noahic covenant. But there is a sign (laughs) and uh, that sign is a sign of a rainbow. So when we see the rainbow, how many of you, whenever you see a rainbow, do you think of the Noahic covenant? Yeah, don't you? And again, that is a sign of God's faithfulness that he's not going to destroy the earth again with a flood. So there's the Noahic covenant. Now, uh, that's on your, we're going to look at the promise to Abraham here, but that's where we are in this chart. Okay, we've looked at the Adamic covenant, we've looked at the Noahic covenant, which is preserving all of mankind so that he can accomplish that plan that he laid out in Genesis 3.15. And then... Um, comes the Abrahamic covenant. And this is where we're going to focus um, most of our time here today. Before God enters into the covenant with Abraham, he comes to Abraham when he is living in Haran. Abraham is probably about 75 years old. And this is in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. And this is what the Lord says to Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. By the way, he was in Haran at this point, not in Ur. He had already left Ur with his father and they had traveled to Haran and they kind of settled there. And now God comes to him and says, go from this country, go from your kindred, go to a land that I'm going to show you. And what, what does he say he's going to do? I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So here in this word from God to Abram, before he ever leaves, at this point, his name is Abram, not Abraham. Before he ever leaves Haran, God says to him, he promises to him that there is going to be a seed. And I think that that is implied by his saying, I'm going to make of you a great nation. You know, you don't get a whole bunch of people until you get one. So um, he's going to make of him a great nation. So there's a promise of a seed, which is implied. There's a promise of a nation. And then there's a promise of extended blessing to all the families. And we learn from Galatians 3.8, that that refers to the nations of the earth. So the, the promise is extended to the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the promise of extended blessing is to all the families of the earth. Here as God comes to Abraham when he was still in Haran. So the blessing focuses on a great nation and all the nations of the earth. 
<clears throat> well, <clears throat> that's not the only time that God gives this promise to Abraham. He comes later in Genesis 12, verse 7, just a few verses later. Abraham was probably uh, 75 years old or so when he left Haran, and he went to Shechem in Canaan. He's in Shechem now, and God says to him, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your offspring I will give this land. So now he adds the land to his promise. I'm going to give you a seed. I'm going to give you offspring. They're going to develop into a great nation. And now I'm going to give you a land. He adds that to it when he's in Shechem. So second time that God appears to him. So Abraham then, he goes to Egypt because there's a famine in the land. Spends some time in Egypt. Probably becomes fairly wealthy. And then he returns back to Canaan again. And he's in Canaan, and the Lord appears to him a third time. And it says, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. So here we have the land and we have the seed, offspring. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. It's going to become like a nation so that if anyone can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. And so God appears to him a third time, um, expanding, as it were, in some way, the promise to Abraham. And so the promise focuses here on a seed, a nation, and a land. Well, that is uh, the promise behind the the, the, the um, promises behind the time when God actually comes and establishes the covenant with Abraham. So now let us look at the covenant with Abraham. And you have another handout, and it has two sides to it. On one side, it'll refer to Genesis chapter 15. On the other side, to Genesis uh, 17 and uh, 20, 26. So look at the side with Genesis 15. <laughs> And here we see some of the features of the covenant uh, as it comes to Abraham. Well, the function is unilateral. Initially, it seems pretty much unilateral. There's, there's, uh, although Abraham does have to leave, um, but nevertheless, it's pretty much unilateral as God is going to assign it. And we're going to look at this in, in more detail in just a moment. I don't think there's really a what I would call a preamble or a historical prologue. Perhaps you could say that there is, but you know, verse seven. No stipulations given here. The covenant sanctions. There's only blessing promised. There is a ratifying oath, and that is really key to the Abrahamic covenant, which we will look at. And there's no sign that is given at this point in Genesis chapter 15. So let's look, if you will, in your Bibles to, at Genesis chapter 15. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15. And we're going to go through this and see what God is doing. Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis 15, we read this. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abraham knows what that reward is. He's already told him three times. Here he comes, and this is the fourth time. And Abraham said... Oh, Lord God, what will, and I'm reading from the NASB, so if it differs from yours, 
you, I think you'll be able to follow along okay. <clears throat> oh Lord God, what wilt thou give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. He's my servant. In those days, if you didn't have a child, then your servant could become your heir. <clears throat> and so Abraham said, I don't have any kids yet. And this is, this is years after he had already made these promises, probably at least 10 years since he had initially came, uh, came to Abraham and made promises to him of having a seed and, and land and all that. He says, since thou hast given me no, off, in verse three, since thou hast given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then, behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man, that is Eliezer, will not be your heir, but one who shall come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. Abraham's probably 85 years old, I think, at this point. And he took him outside and he said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. So you can imagine here, he, God takes Abraham and says, okay, get out of your tent, get out of your tent here. I want you to go look at the stars. And he's looking up at the stars and he's saying, you see, you see the Pleiades, you see Orion's belt, you see the bear, you, you see the star, you see the Milky Way. It looks kind of like, kind of hazy, but there's millions of stars in that. You see all that, Abraham? Your descendants are going to be like that. That's what your seed is going to be. Harkening back actually to Genesis 3.15, the seed promise ultimately. So shall your descendants be. Fourth time God has come to him, at least that we have recorded. What does Abraham do? Still 85 years old, no kids. Verse 6, key verse in the Bible. Then he... Abraham believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Okay, God, I don't have any children. You say Eliezer is not going to be my heir. You tell me that I'm going to have a multitude of descendants. I believe you. And he says... God reckoned it to him as righteousness. The faith of Abraham was reckoned to him as righteousness because he believed what God said about his plan. <clears throat> and Paul quotes that later as grounds for saying that justification is by faith alone. Nothing that Abraham was going to do, all that God was going to do, and God imputes righteousness to him in verse 6. But look at verse 7. He said to him, <clears throat> I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. And now, how many of you have ever felt like um, the, the man who, who comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief? Do you ever feel like that? I think Abraham probably felt a little bit like that. Look at verse 8. And he said, O oh Lord, God, how may I know that I shall possess it? He's already believed God. He's already had righteousness reckoned to him. He has the root. He has faith. But yet there's a, a kind of weakness in a sense. And, and take heart, brothers and sisters. <laughs> you may feel like your faith is weak at times. And you may feel like Abraham felt. 
And you may feel like praying, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. But that doesn't mean that your faith isn't real. It was real for Abraham. He says, how may I know that I shall possess it? And so he said to him, bring me a heifer, <clears throat> bring me a three-year-old heifer and three-year-old female goat and three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and young pigeons. Oh, Lord, <laughs> hey, what, what's all this about? You want me to do all this? I think Abraham kind of knew God must have explained it to him. Because what happens after that? Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other. But he did not, he did not cut the birds, put them on each side too. But imagine this. So here he has all these animals, these three animals, cuts them in half, puts them on each side of the path, lays them in a little pathway here. Abraham knows what's going on because he knows what the covenant, treaty, oath process is about. He puts all the, the birds out there and then the vultures and stuff come and they try to get him and Abraham has to drive them away. Verse 12, Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation, this is Egypt, whom they will serve. And afterward, they shall come out with many possessions. They plunder the Egyptians as they are delivered through Moses. So even the Mosaic covenant is in God's mind at this point, what's going to happen. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace and you shall be buried at a good old age. You'll, you'll die and you'll be gone. Then in the fourth generation, they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And it came about when the sun had set that a very great dark and it was that it was very dark and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch. Now what's that about? Here he's got these animals cut in half in a smoking oven and a flaming torch. There's smoke and fire. Does that remind you of anything? Mind of anything in the scriptures? Well, what's that? Yeah, okay. What about Mount Sinai? In Exodus, just before God establishes the Mosaic Covenant, what happens? The people have been delivered from Egypt, and, uh, and Moses takes the people to the foot of Mount Sinai, and this is what, uh, what it says in, in uh, Exodus chapter 19. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and it smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked violently. It was a radical thing going on there, but what did this fire and the smoke represent? It was God coming down on Mount Sinai. What happened when Moses was out before he ever went there and he saw this bush that was on fire? <coughs> and God says to him, out of the bush, take your saddles of your off your feet for the ground in which you stand is holy. This symbol of fire represents God and I believe that's what's happening here very clearly in, in Genesis chapter 15 
in verse 17. And so a smoking oven and a flaming torch. And what does it do? What does a smoking oven and flaming torch do? It says, which passed between these pieces. And so Abraham sees, in answer to his question, how am I going to know that you're going to fulfill this promise to me? He sees God coming down in, the, in a symbolic form, in the form of a smoking oven and a, and a torch. He sees God in smoke and fire coming down, passing between the pieces that were cut in half. And God, in essence, is saying by his passing through those pieces, I am taking the maledictory oath upon myself. If I do not keep my part, my promise in this covenant, may it be done to me as was done to those animals. May I be slain. Well, there's one thing that we know about God. There's not just one thing. There's a couple things we know about God. God will never lie and God can never die. And so we know God is saying, Abraham, I am God. I am deity. I am the I am. And I want you to know that I have promised you something and I will die before I fail to keep my promise to you. That's how you can know, Abraham. That's how sure my promise is. And so we see in this Abrahamic covenant, God swearing the oath of ratification, which makes it a promise covenant. There's nothing that Abraham has to do. It's all God. He's going to accomplish his, his plan. And so, verse 18, On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your descendants I have given this land. On that day is when the covenant was made. I want you to... Turn with me over real quickly to Exodus or to Hebrews chapter six. Hebrews chapter six. <clears throat> Remember, at this point, when God made the covenant with Abraham, He had already promised to him how many times that we've read so far before that. Four times. Then he enters into a covenant. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he, he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. And that's what he was doing when he passed between the, the, the um, pieces there. He is swearing by his own life that he will keep his covenant saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And thus, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise, that is, as Abraham obtained the promise, for men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath is given as confirmation, is an, an oath given in, as confirmation is the end of every dispute. You know, we hear, we see people, I swear on my mother's grave, or, you know, I put my hand in the Bible and I swear in the Bible, something like that. Well, there's nobody greater than God. And so he swears on his own life. Verse 17, in the same way, God desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose. I want you to notice two things. Purpose is unchangeable. Number And number two, it's a purpose. He had a purpose there, not a covenant, but a purpose. He promised Abraham already. The unchangeableness of his purpose. He, he What did he do? He interposed with an oath 
So he's already made the promise. Four times he's come to Abraham. I have promised and promised and promised. It's unchangeable. Because I'm unchangeable. I'm God. I don't lie. But I'm going to do something else. I'm going to swear an oath of ratification. So that, it says, he interposed with an oath in order that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong encouragement. We who have fled for refuge in have, in laying hold of the hope that is set before us. And so, God could have said to Abraham, look Abraham, I've already told you four times I'm going to do that. That's enough. Now buck up and, li- and listen to what I'm telling you. Believe me. He didn't do that. He entered into an oath. He'd already given the promise. And now he gives an oath. He had already given the promise four times one unchangeable thing. His word is unchangeable. Now he he enters into a promise covenant, swearing a maledictory oath so that by two unchangeable things, Abraham knows that that what God has planned is going to happen. His purpose is unchangeable. And that's what's happening in the Mosaic or in the... uh, Abrahamic covenant. Does that give you hope? According to Hebrews, it should. It should give you hope. The hope is this, that if you, like Abraham, believe God when he says, come unto me all you who labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest. When he says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you believe God like Abraham believed God, his promise to you is unchangeable. He'll die before he fails to keep that promise. Well, um, I wanted to go on and talk a little bit about the other side of this chart that you have here, um, Genesis 17 and 26, because there is a confirmation of the Abrahamic covenant. It is not a new, different covenant. It's the same covenant. And God augments it. And it's indicated by the fact that the terminology that is used there is not, I'm going to cut a covenant with Abraham, but I'm going to confirm the covenant with Abraham. We are kind of out of time, and I want to just give a few minutes for any of you to ask any questions. We'll we'll, We'll talk about this other part next week. Any questions, any comments that you'd like to share from what we've covered so far? You see the difference, by the way, between a law covenant and a promise covenant? And by the way, let me, let me make this one final comment that there's some who would say that a covenant is established simply by making a promise. As long as there are two parties and one guy promises to another guy something and maybe there's a condition involved, that establishes covenant. I think that according to Hebrews, that doesn't. 
because the promise already existed and there was already a relationship between two parties and you know Abraham was supposed to, to leave he had a condition of having to leave um, the land that he was in um, so here we have you know two parties we have a promise we have uh, a, a condition uh, but that did not constitute the covenant according to Hebrews chapter 6 the covenant was constituted was established when God engaged with Abraham in Genesis 15 and entered into a, a covenant relationship with him, swearing the oath of ratification. So there was a promise, and then there was the covenant. Two aspects there. Any, any other thoughts or questions? Okay, well, if not, yes, no? Okay. Okay, well, I hope that this would be of some encouragement to you and help you in, in terms of understanding. Uh, we're, we're kind of just working our way through this, and we're going to have to pick up where we, we um, left off here today in looking at the subject of circumcision and how circumcision ties in with the Abrahamic covenant because that's actually very key when it comes to understanding the um, Pedro-Baptist argument for um, infant baptism. So we'll pick up here again next week.